This is the best of the Joan Hamburg Show, the first lady of New York radio. Best of. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. I've got a real treat for you today. Two fabulous guests, Henry Winkler and Lynn Oliver. And you know, it's interesting. My producer engineer and I were talking about um, Mr. Winkler earlier on, and he said, you know, I can't believe that those books, and he was familiar with the books, were all written with Henry Winkler. I said, a Renaissance man. Nothing but the best guests do we get. And Lynn Oliver, who describes her childhood where she and her sister had pink and green hair because their mom constantly dressed them alike, and they hated it. So they both come a long, interesting way to celebrate a brand new book from that duo, Henry Winkler and Lynn Oliver, Alien Superstar, Hollywood versus the Galaxy. And I know it's a, well, a children's book, sort of middle school book, but I'm telling you, it's for everyone. It's funny as can be. It's a great read. And of course, I sat up the other night thinking, this is for my granddaughter, but there I am laughing and glued to it and feeling if I were a kid, I would really feel good if I read this book because I wouldn't feel like I was alone or I was different or I couldn't do anything. I would start to value the things that make each person special. So congratulations. Thank guys. you. It's really great. And Lynn, we'll start with you. Just like Henry, who sort of knew what he wanted to do from the time he was a kid, you really knew you wanted to tell stories and be a writer from the time you were a kid. Absolutely. That's, it's one of my earliest memories that I always wanted to be a writer. In fact, I, I tell the story that when I was little, literally like two years old, I would go up and down our block in Burbank where I was raised and knock on people's doors to say, do you want to know what happened at our house last night? So my <laughs> my parents were not thrilled with that behavior. <laughs> I'm there, sure. There were no, when you live with a writer, even if the writer is two years old, there are no secrets. Right. And, and Henry, you described your childhood. You said, which I loved, you grew up with a high level of low self-esteem. And that <laughs> academics were not your strong suit in those years. No, I, I literally am, uh, I'm clocked in at, in the bottom 3% academically in America. <laughs> but you stepped over that 3%. Do you know why? I, what, what, what we write about is that how you learn has nothing to do with what you can achieve with uh, how brilliant you are. Yeah, but it's sometimes a hard journey to get to that point. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And But I think sometimes that hard journey literally um, prepares you for the battle in life. Yeah, well, you're making a good point. But when you were just a kid, it was eighth grade, I think I read, you were in a high school play, and instead of going into the family lumber business, which the parents dreamed of, you sort of knew that 
this was the path you were going to take. It is really true. And here it is. When you know what you want without ambivalence, you just keep walking toward your dream. And eventually you get there. And here I am with Lynn. This is our our 37th novel together. And I never in a million years thought I could be part of a team that would write one. Right, let alone all, and so successful. But then how did you and Lynn in different worlds come together? How did you even know that you were going to do this? Very simply, there was a lull in my acting career. Uh, after a mutual Fonz? friend uh, After the Fonz, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I, I literally thought I was going to beat the system, the, that the Fonz was so popular, so big, I was going to go from mountaintop to mountaintop. And I found myself sliding right into the valley. Mm. And a, a mutual friend suggested I write books about my dyslexia. And I said, I can't do that. He said, I'm going to introduce you to my good friend, Lynn Oliver, who is the, the who started the Society of children's book writers and illustrators that now have like 37,000 members around the world. And we had lunch and we hatched Hank Zipser to begin with. And here we are. Right. All these, all these books later. And for both of you, enormously successful, which, you know, it's not so easy in the world of books. Well, it's, it's, it's been a, a really satisfying journey because we hope that what we write about, I was, I was so thrilled, Joan, to hear your introduction where you talked about how in reading Alien Superstar, what, what the thought that occurred to you was that how important it is to value our differences and to know that each person is different and unique. And so that's, that's what we write about. That's the underlying theme of, even though we write comedy and entertainment, that's the underlying theme of everything we write about. So it's been satisfying not only to have the book so commercially successful, but to know that they're reaching an audience of kids who need to hear that message. Right. And especially Henry, who describes really having a tough struggle academically in school, although he found his way, he was gifted as an actor. But Henry, you were a grown-up before they understood that you weren't a terrible student. You suffered from dyslexia, and it right. just hadn't been recognized. Right. Uh, I'm when I married Stacy. Uh, uh, Jed, my oldest, uh, my stepson, came with the marriage—a wonderful gift—and we had him tested in the third grade. And everything they said to him was yeah. true about me. And it was at 31 mm-hmm. I realized I wasn't stupid; that I literally had something with a name. Right. And then Lynn and I created um, a character together over bad fish in a restaurant um, mm. that would embody that little boy's journey. And then out of that came Ghost Buddy, and then out of that came uh, the alien superstar. And this is the, the third in a trilogy. But I like to say that we write our books. So they're fun to read all three of them, 
but this you could also read as a standalone, and uh, it would be satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. And for the parent as well as for the child, because it reinforces those lessons that sometimes parents, in their zeal to have successful children, forget. So I was really impressed with all of that. Thank you. And, of course, Henry, in, in your journey, you talk about your family, too. And even though I had heard the story about your dad leaving to come to America, I never get tired of hearing that story. The melted chocolate and the jewelry, it's right. still so an extraordinary story. My father got a six-week visa to come to America to uh, explore his business, which was importing and exporting wood. Uh, as they left Germany, he took his wife, um, my, my mother's jewelry, and my, my grandmother's jewelry, bought a box of chocolate, melted down the chocolate, and then poured it over the jewelry, let it harden. So when the Nazis said, are you taking anything of value out of the country? He said, no, open all my bags. There's nothing. And under his arm was this box of chocolate. He then pawned the jewelry when he got to New York. That allowed him to start a new life here. And then he was able to buy the jewelry back. And on my bar mitzvah, I got my great-grandfather's pocket watch that came out of Germany encased in chocolate. Unbelievable. You know, I never get tired of that story because Thank you. it's it's all about ingenuity, too. Who, th- who would it think is. of such a thing? I'm such, you know, so pessimistic sometimes. I would think that the Nazis would say, oh, that looks good. Let's have a piece. <laughs> Thank God they didn't. They were on a diet. <laughs> you, you, they lucked out in that particular group. But both Henry and Lynn, everyone has turning points in life. And Henry, you started working fairly early. And then when the Fonz came about, you know, who expected that would be such a big deal? I still remember giving my husband a birthday party of a high school prom because he said he never went to his own prom. And almost oh. all the guests came like you. They were all oh wearing God, leather jackets. You know, all the stuff. It was such a power force then. And it took a while for it to catch on. But once it caught, that was it. Yes, really. Yeah. And and Lynn and I, what we did was, as we travel around the the world, really, and the country, and go into classrooms and talk to the children, read to the children, the kids are fascinated by Hollywood. And what is it? And they're and they're fascinated by outer space, and so we took the two and we put them together in this book, Alien Superstar, Hollywood versus the Galaxy, and then Lynn has produced and written um, uh, hundreds of episodes of television. I've been on television, so we wrote what we knew, and the combination has been magical. What you do is you think about what, what, where children are already interested. And as Henry said, all kids are fascinated with space and space creatures. And most kids are fascinated with celebrity, with what it's really like to be uh, a Hollywood superstar. So when we put those two ideas together, 
we created the story of an alien kid who's from a red dwarf planet out in the universe who has to flee his repressive government. And he gets into a rocket ship that's built by his engineer grandmother, Grandma Wrinkle, and goes <laughs> to the only place in the universe that feels safe, which is Earth. And his spaceship lands on the back lot of Universal Studios where the tour is going on. And so when he disembarks from his spaceship as an alien, he fits right in because everybody else who's walking around is dressed as a character. So it's the story of his life on Earth as an alien in uh, hidden in plain sight. Right. And becoming sort of a hero in the world of media. Yeah. Which is fascinating. But, Lynn, when, you know, a lot of kids, everyone, like where my kids grew up, they all want to be actors, writers, you know, easier said than done. So even though you were telling stories from the time you were a wee child, what was the break where someone said this kid can really or this young woman can really write and took your first book? What was that well, process? It's kind of, you know, it's kind of like Henry, whose parents, you know, wanted him to be in the family business. Right. You know, my parents, well, my father was a lawyer and my mother was a doctor. So the fact that they had a child who wanted to be a writer with an uncertain future, and as my father pointed out to me repeatedly, a job with no health insurance, right. <laughs> was, that was very alarming to them. So it took, a lot of pers- it took a lot of persistence to convince him that I was willing to take the health insurance risk in order to try and succeed in my dream, which was to, which was to be a writer. And so I, I persisted. Something we talk to kids about is if there's something you want to do, you have to practice. You have to practice to get good at it. It doesn't just happen. So I wrote all through grammar school. I was editor of my high school paper. I was editor of my college paper. I won a journalism contest. And then I won a comedy writing contest to to, to work in Hollywood writing sitcoms. So I persisted all those years practicing to, to try and achieve the skill to succeed. So I, I guess the, the turning point for me was was when I got to work at Universal Studios as a as a writer producer, that sort of established me in my own eyes, and certainly in my father's eyes, because it came with health insurance. Exactly, <laughs> the things that everyone cared about, right? That's right. That's right. So, and then Henry, you after the Fonz, which was a huge run and life changing. Life changing. And like a lot of my pals who are actors who have been on TV or sitcoms or stuff, it was always the same story. I got to get rid of this character now or I'm not going to get work again. And what did it take for you to jump over the Fonz, which was so good to you, to the next step? Well, first of all, not denying that that I had this wonderful experience playing Fonzie on Happy Days. But what I had to do then was to take another direction, and you have to reinvent yourself. So part of my compensation for Fonz was to be able to produce a show if ABC liked it, if I brought them a show they liked. And thank God the first show we brought them was uh, MacGyver. Yeah, which was a big deal. 
uh, and it turned out to uh, to work. And then I started to direct a little bit. And then in 1991, uh, Happy Days finished in 1983. In 1991, I started to get acting roles that were not Fonz-like. And then in 2002, I met Lynn and, and we um, started that. writing together. And then all of a sudden, I was a fledgling um, writer of children's books. Right. Uh, a turnaround. And now, Barry, a movie, you're in a Wes Anderson movie. Yes, it comes out on the 22nd. It's called The French Dispatch. And um, I I just want to say it is an honor that I got to be, that I got the call to be in a Wes Anderson movie. I get that totally. You know, I was standing on on the set, and he said, Henry, and I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God. He's going to give me a direction now. I'm going to be directed (laughs) by Wes Anderson. And he said, could you move a millimeter to the left? And I said, yes, I can. Here I go. Henry, loved catching up with you and both of you. Always a pleasure, Joan. Love the book. And the book is available in all the bookstores, everywhere you buy books. Alien Superstar, Hollywood versus the Galaxy. Two great people with wonderful stories. Henry Winkler, Lynn Oliver. Enjoy everything. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. Best of. This is the best of the Joan Hamburg Show. I love talking to Seth Meyers, and you know he's an award-winning writer. He's a comedian, late night with Seth Meyers. He was out of school just a handful of years, so sort of eat your heart out when he landed a job for Saturday Night Live. Like, how did that happen? But it happened, and he never looked back. And now Seth has a best-selling book called I'm Not Scared, You're Scared with Wonderful Illustrations, and it's the story of a bear, a great big bear, who is scared of almost everything, and his best friend, a little bunny, is scared of nothing. And this book explains to you how the scaredy cat rose to the occasion when he had to. So congratulations, a best-selling book. Were you scared when you were a kid? I was scared. I was scared of a great many things. And I think I was very lucky to have parents who were the right kind of parents to raise a scared kid. They didn't necessarily tell me to just get over it. They were good listeners. They helped me work through my fears. Because I think ultimately with your kids, what I'm finding now is you can tell them all you want that something's not actually scary. Ultimately, they have to come to that decision on their own. So uh, you just go on that journey with them. And scared as a kid is one thing. Scared as a grown-up. I mean, we have terrible things in the world that scare us. But it's also very scary being a comic and trying to go out there and making people laugh. How did you deal with that? Did that phase you or you just felt you could go ahead and do it when you started? 
when I was a young comedian, I mean, that was the hardest part was just getting over that initial fear of, of being able to walk out on stage in front of people. Back in, I remember in high school, I really wanted to do school plays, but I could not even bring myself to audition for them. I was just too terrified by it. And it wasn't until I found my way into college and, and I saw an improv troupe. And that made me think, oh, thinking fast on my feet might be a thing that I could thrive at. And so that was my sort of gateway into being on stage was doing improv comedy and then very slowly working my way, obviously through the many hurdles after that. But yeah, stage fright, you know, I know it's a fear that a lot of people have. And and I think most performers had it at one point too. And I still get a little bit of anxiety before I go out on stage. Um, And to some degree, I think anxiety is is a helpful companion at times because it, it helps you sort of focus in on the task at hand. And I think that's helpful. But even as a writer, the big job that you got when you were only, what, five, six years out of college? Yeah. Saturday Night Live. Was that, now that was probably collaborative, right? Was that a group activity at that time? No. The way SNL works is you sort of, you can collaborate with maybe one or two other people, but you're sort of on your own. They give you a computer and an office. And, you know, when you start, you share your office with a couple of people. I was lucky enough that our sense of the humor lined up, but other people weren't. And you just sit there and look at a blank piece of paper and think, what am I going to write this week for a show that I've watched since I was a kid? And I'm going to have it read by movie stars that I've known my whole life and, and hope that it goes well in front of the comedians I most respect in the world. It was a daunting task. And, and, you know, I think having lived through that period of professional anxiety makes everything after that a little bit easier to bear because that was the scariest it ever was. But as a grown-up with all of us, with a lot of issues, but how did you deal with the pandemic? And did your kids think about it or were they too young? They were mercifully too young. I think they had their own challenges insofar as they were out of school, obviously, like everyone else's kids. But, you know, they were when it started four and two. So it wasn't a fear so much for them as it was for us. But the silver lining was we got to be together more than we would have been had I been doing the show in the studio. And so for basically a full year, I was doing the show out of the studio to some degree and getting to spend more time with my kids. So it was a, it was a trippy time. It was a creatively exhilarating time. You know, you do a show in a studio and the longer you do it in the studio, um, there are things you just start taking for granted. And all of a sudden I was doing it in an attic and having to figure out how to do lights and sound and makeup and, and everything that I had just turned over to skilled professionals. <laughs> but it was, you know, the kind of challenge you don't expect to get that late in your career. And I came out the other side of it and I think the show's better. And I also think I appreciate the people I work with more than I ever have. And I think I appreciated them a lot beforehand but now more than ever. You get it. And it seems to me, even watching it, now maybe this is just because of our times, that the relationship with the audience changes a little. It does. Yeah. So tell me what that was like when you first came back and there were these 
adoring people, you know, loving you, laughing, clapping, making you feel like, hey, this is me. I can do this. Well, you know, the stripped down version of the show where you're alone in an attic and you're doing the show into an iPad and then you realize a lot of people are just watching the show on an iPad. And so by removing the studio audience, I felt closer to the audience than I ever had before. And so I was a little worried, to be honest, about going back into the studio and being in front of 180 audience members every night. But it was really emotional the first night they came back, because when I walked out, I felt from them not just that they were an audience, but that they were the audience that had been watching me at home. And it wasn't that. I'd been away from them physically. I'd been away from them for two years, but uh, they'd been with me and I'd been with them. And so that closeness has continued uh, as we as we started doing the show with with a more, you know, normal routine again. Right. I'm talking to Seth Myers, and you see him, I hope, every night. An Emmy Award winning writer, comedian, late night with Seth Myers used to be the head writer on Saturday Night Live. A brand new children's book, I'm Not Scared, You're Scared. Did your kids get upset because you thought they were scared, or did they feel relief with the book? I don't know if they thought either of those. They mostly were just really happy that they were mentioned in the dedications at the end. Uh I think they're happiest to show their names in print to their friends. They were really helpful through the whole process, like, you know, was so much of why I wanted to write a children's book is because we read so many children's books. And I certainly didn't want to write the kind of book that my kids would put at the bottom of the pile. So the whole process before I even put pen to paper was telling them the story at night as a bedtime story first. And then it was so much fun to show them uh, the art as it came in from um, Rob Sag Jr., our incredible illustrator. And they've been a part of the process the whole time. And, and they definitely feel, I think they talk about the book as though they had also co-authored it. And I just want to make it very clear on the show, Joan, they did yes. not. I did all the work. They were just there. Okay. They were, they were in the room, but all the good ideas came from me. I certainly hope so. Seth Myers. I'm not scared. You're scared. And when I read this really charming children's book, what a time. I mean, we have kids watching a war on television or seeing things. So I think about fear a lot because I feel scared. And I wonder how children do with it. What do you think? Is this having an impact on all these kids? I think it is. I think it obviously matters what age they are because, you know, the older kids get, they control their flow of information Mm -hmm. probably at a younger age than we were able to. But the biggest job for parents, it strikes me, is to try to leave your own anxiety at the door when you come home. Uh, because I think kids ultimately are going to learn fear from the adults they have in their lives. And so while it's important to make sure your kids aren't living in a bubble, you don't want them to know what's going on in the world. At the same time, you want to make space to just be a family and to not let outside stresses color how you're living your life with each other. And being a writer and a comedian and all these things, the world has changed a lot. Funny, it seems to me, 
has changed. And yet I saw an old show that was brought back a revival that was a little tired, but I laughed throughout the entire show. And the person with me said, what was so funny? I said, all these familiar things, I don't care how tired, how stale they are. It was such a relief to laugh and be able to make fun of ourselves. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It is nice. I mean, it is um, a real credit to the comedy that's endured that it can still make you laugh. Right. I still remember Buddy Hackett in the early days. You know what? It's so, uh, my YouTube algorithm always suggests old Johnny Carson clips to me because over the years I've just gone back and looked and uh, Buddy Hackett is so much fun to go back and watch Rodney Dangerfield and Carson, Bob Euchre. It's just so much fun. It's so, it's also patient, which is also a really nice thing to look back on is how much air there was and how much they were enjoying each other and how the audience was waiting on their every word. It's, it, it brings me great comfort to watch those old clips. It does. And we wanted a laugh, which is why watching the Oscars the other night, which were a little boring until um, Will Smith broke the boredom cycle. Yes. And right. I mean, that was the best part of the Oscars. I wouldn't say it was the best part of the Oscars. (laughs) I would say it was the worst part of the Oscars, but it would, I would also argue, I would never argue that it wasn't boring. It was, it was certainly not boring, but it was not good. It was so unexpected because as the audience removed in front of a TV screen, when that first happened, we didn't know, should, is this a funny bit? Are we going to laugh? So I mean, I bet, I bet until the moment it happened, uh, Chris Rock felt the same way. <laughs> you know, it must have, he must have been wondering if this was going to be a bit too. But you know what? He did good because he just carried on ignoring yeah. the blip in a way and just went right on. And I thought that was pretty good. I said to my writers, if I got slapped, we would cancel shows until July. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, so and you'd I, have shrinks up the kazoo coming yeah. <laughs> to explain what happened. <laughs> but uh, really, a crazy time. What's appropriate and what's not? And is there an answer? Do you punish a guy for like a mental lapse? They couldn't get him out, apparently, of the room. Yes. I mean, I, I, I think that uh, it was more than a mental lapse. I don't quite know if there if a, a what the punishment is, but I, Uh yeah, I wouldn't write it off as just a mental lapse. There were a lot of, there were a lot of outs there in the, um, in the moment he, he decided to get up in the moment he did the slap. Right. And, and a lot of anger. And as, how do you really handle this? If you're a Chris Rock, was that the right thing to just step over it and go on? I think, uh, it's it's almost unfair to ask what was the right thing because right, when you think about knows. how little time he had to think about it, um, I'm mostly just impressed that the speed in which he processed and recovered was uh, was just something to uh, something to observe. Right, and wh- when you think of the earlier comedians that we were talking about, 
there was a place for what some people would consider offensive. It just seemed better humored. It didn't seem angry. It was, we just thought it was funny. But yes. can we do that today? I don't, I don't know if that would work I think, today. I think, we, I think we can. I think there's a lot. I think comedy is actually uh, an incredibly robust creative place right now. I think there are a lot of different voices in a way that there wasn't in the time we're talking about. You know, when we were talking about Johnny Carson, I do love those clips, but there was not um, a diversity of guests there that you see today. And so I think, yeah, it's great. We have new voices, new comedy voices. Comedy is a really great time, I actually think, to be a comedian. And I think that there's a little bit too much pearl clutching about what you can and can't say. Uh-huh. Um, you know, because I think that ultimately um, Chris Rock had every right to say that. And he wasn't the one that was at fault. I think we should all agree that people shouldn't get on stage and slap anyone. Exactly. Yeah. And so who knows what's going to happen. But your job of satirizing the news on a daily basis, practically, has that gotten harder and harder? Or um, you it just hasn't. It? It, you know, I... It, look, it's really cathartic to talk about the news for me. I think I'd be really depressed if I didn't have an outlet. And so I'm always thinking of it through the spectrum of how much worse it would be if I wasn't making jokes about it. And I'm hoping to provide that catharsis to the people that are listening as well. Um, certainly there are days where you wish you had any other job. But more often than not, I'm thrilled and, and feel very lucky and, and uh want to take advantage of it and want to do it to the best of my ability. And I'm lucky to be surrounded by the people that make that possible. Right. I'm talking to Seth Meyers, a new book. I'm not scared. You're scared. But you do a lot, whether it's special Lobby Baby, which was when one of your kids was born in the lobby of your apartment building, speaking of fear. And <laughs> you've, you've done all that. Do you ever... as I really thought about you when I watched this recent Broadway show. Do you ever think about doing that to add that to the ledger? A Broadway show? Yeah, to write a show. I think there's nothing I would ever rule out. The only tricky thing for me as we continue to have children and the job of father becomes the most important in my life is finding the time for other projects. But they're all, they're all so exciting to me. And, you know, I'm so happy I found the time to write a children's book. I'm so happy I found the time to go do a stand-up special. But, you know, moving forward, the show takes a lot of my focus and obviously a lot of my time. And, and I want to make sure there's also ample, ample uh, time on the calendar to, to be just a dad because that's be the best okay. of all the jobs. Right. And, with a show like yours, do you get to rehearse it or no? So here's the thing. We don't anymore. We used to before the pandemic because we used to tape our show later. But then during the pandemic, we moved all our deadlines up out of necessity because, you know, when everybody was working at home, we had to feed all this giant digital files back into the network. And so we got really good at doing the show a little bit earlier. And also during the pandemic, obviously, there was no way to rehearse anything because there was no audience to rehearse in front of. And now we're just kind of flying by the seat of our pants and it, we really enjoy it. We, I think we work a lot harder on the writing knowing that we don't have the benefit of a rehearsal. And for me, 
as a performer, it's more exciting to be doing it for the first time at the actual taping. So that's one of the changes of the pandemic that we think has made the show a little bit more exciting. Yeah, well, it's a great show to watch. I got a big kick out of reading the book. Don't forget Seth Meyers, I'm Not Scared. You're Scared with wonderful illustrations. Congratulations. I look forward to talking to you again. I'm really hoping the next time's in person. Will you invite me to one of your in-person tapings? I will, without question. Okay, good. I look forward right, to I look it. Forward Say hello to everyone, right. and we'll talk again. All I'm right. Joan Thank Hamburg. you, Joan. Thank you, Seth. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC, so there's lots more to come. Stay tuned. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The best of the Joan Hamburg Show. The first lady of New York radio. Best of. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And Cheryl Crow is visiting, and she's got something that I think, I don't really know Cheryl Crow, but it sounded surprising to me that this um, brilliant artist, a nine-time Grammy Award recipient with an incredible career, which is flourishing, like, why do a documentary now? But Cheryl, why? How come a documentary now? Oh my gosh, Joan, I'll be honest with you. When they came to me at the beginning of quarantine, sorry, my dogs are now barking. That's okay, I've got to one too. Be- oh my gosh, they're so needy. Anyway, when they came to me, my manager came to me at the beginning of quarantine and said, look, you've got offers to do a documentary. This would be a great time to do it. And I said, absolutely not don't want to do it. And um, over a period of time, we discussed it more. And he's like, look, you have over 30 years of life experience, and it won't be all about the career. It's about the person. And I've, I've thought about how much documentaries have meant to me over the years, and they aren't all about people who've already died and gone on. So I decided, let's let's do it, but it's got to be on my terms. And hired a great documentarian or a great director, Amy Scott, and over the course of a year, we had tons of interviews, and we wound up with what we have. And, and I'm, I'm really pleased with it. I really love the soundtrack, which has got new songs on it as well. And so hopefully people will like it, and they'll, they'll, see, they'll see the journey of a person in my business as opposed to somebody famous who's reflecting on 30 years of fame. Right, and that's what I think is the gift. Like, who knows? We see you, this incredible woman with a fabulous career. We see you as a mother, as a friend, as a daughter, a sister, all these things, but we don't really know about the struggle. You know, when people reach heights, it's easy to look in and say, well, no big deal. You know, look what she's done, and it was easy they don't really realize the struggle that goes on, the sacrifices to get to where you got to. 
Yeah, and I think you know, for obviously, I'm from a different generation. There, there, there wasn't social media. There weren't big TV contests where you could become famous really quickly with a built-in fan base. You know, you started out as a scrapper, and I, I'm grateful for that because it gave me the opportunity to figure out who I was, and it gave me the opportunity to really hone my thing. But um, nothing back then really happened overnight, and. Um, just navigating that, navigating going from working really hard um, on on my craft and then all of a sudden becoming famous as a celebrity and the two not seeming to, like, um, gel, it, it it was not without its challenges. And it, it, it was a great, a great opportunity to talk about what it means to be a person and particularly a woman in, um, in my business and still maintain some sense of self. Yeah, well, and even the beginning with your boldness of sort of pushing your way to an audition for a Michael Jackson, he was going on tour, but you sort of, I I didn't know, maybe I knew that, read that a hundred years ago, but I let it go, and it was fascinating to read that, because was he Michael Jackson? I was so ballsy, I mean, honestly. (laughs) You know, I didn't... I just thought, okay, what what's the worst thing that can happen if I crash an audition? They can say, sorry, you can't come in. I mean, little things like that that I just thought, well, I've worked really hard. I'm a nice person, and I'm just going to show up. And things did tend to work in my favor in most instances. It's, it's crazy, um, but, you know, some of those things, I was already, by the time my first album came out, I was already 29. Um I just felt like I got no time to lose here. I'm going to go for it. Right. And and then you go through periods when you think even with your first album, nothing's happening. Why is nothing happening? Nothing's ever going to happen. And you're sort of alone at moments like that. Because even the consolation from a friend or a fellow musician isn't enough to pull you over at that time. Yeah, I mean, I think the real story is that um, you just have to keep walking towards um, the end goal. And I just wanted to be a great musician, and I wanted to be a great songwriter, like the people that I had admired. I mean, I loved and still love Stevie Nicks and the Rolling Stones and um, Stevie Wonder. I mean, all these people whose albums I, I own, James Taylor, um, uh, tapestry, Carol King, helped me to figure out who, who I was as a kid, and they also kind of gave me a ticket out of my hometown. And um, I wanted that life, and it. I think you just keep keeping on, and that was the story for me of my career. I just kept kept at it, kept going, you know, kept just kept showing up, and that. That can happen for anyone, but it's not going to be without its challenges, particularly as a woman. Right. And what, beside Carol King, were there a lot of other women? I was trying to recall what women, as you were coming of age, were there as role models. There weren't a lot. Well, I mean, there were a lot of women on the radio when I was coming up, like Pat Benatar and Chrissy Hine and, and women like that. But when I was very young, you know, Carol King, Bonnie Raitt, Stevie Nicks, uh, uh, Chrissy, um, you know, I had some pretty fierce role models, definitely. 
who seemed to be techno-prisoners. And when I first saw Bonnie Raitt play, that's when I thought, well, um, there's no reason a woman can't front the band and still, you know, rock out on a guitar. And so there were lots of women that kind of gave me permission along the way to figure out who I was. And now here we are, and we have a documentary, and I got to put I three knew. new songs on it, and Mick Jagger is playing on one of them, and, you know, it all kind of comes full circle. So I'm just curious. You have this coming out on May 6th. At this stage now, the kids are teens and growing up. Are you ready for another change, or is this a good place to hang out in for a while? Oh, man, I, I you know, I, I don't feel guilty in at all in saying I'm the last 10 years have been the happiest, the last 15 years have been the happiest years of my life. And I think when you have kids, it, it simplifies things fiercely. You know, it, it, it puts everything in perspective and all the decisions you make become easier because they are founded on what's best for my kids. And it's really made things easy. You know, I, I'm, I'm undergoing all the challenges of being in an ageist, uh, industry. Um, but right. I love my life. I love, I love, and, and to be able to, we have a song that's out now called Forever, be able to put my kids in the doc, in the documentary and Did in they the love video. That? They, they've never been photographed. I've never, you know, advertised my kids. So we're sort of at a really sweet place. And the kids were probably thrilled with it. Do they love music? They love music. Um, my 14-year-old, who's about to be 15 next week, is, you know, he's a little more campy, he's a little more ham. My 11-year-old doesn't, he doesn't want to be on or in anything of mine. Mm. He just wants a mom. He wants my, He wants his mom to be normal, drop him off at school, pick him up at school, you know, and, and I'm great with that. I, you know, that's what I signed up for. But, and you, it was interesting because that you wanted that all along, even with the big fame and the high points, you still wanted that life, whatever that life was. You wanted a piece of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I had a really beautiful upbringing and parents who, I mean, they're still married 66 years and still going strong. And you think that's what your life's going to look like. But then you can't, um, you, you can't negate the fact that you don't have that life. Your life took you to Tokyo and it took you to Russia for crying out loud. And, mm-hmm, right. you know, sometimes it's not going to look exactly the same, but sometimes it's going to be amazing. And that's, um, and then that's my story. And the story, unbelievable. I loved hearing all about the Tuesday night music club and all these things that happened to you along this journey that you recognized and took part in and got over the bad and kept on going. And that's a gift, too. Yeah, you know, um, I, I can safely say that nobody escapes challenges. You know, I, I know, um, you know, I'm I'm a breast cancer survivor. Um, when you look at the statistics of, of how many women will have breast cancer, I'm in a very large community of outstanding yeah. women who have experienced the same thing I have. And, and it doesn't matter you know, cancer doesn't care if you're famous or you're not famous. And um, mm. so there's a lot to my story that I think a lot of people will relate to. And this is a brand new documentary called Cheryl. And that documentary, May 6th, I look forward to talking to you again. Congratulations. 
and all good things to you and your family. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you. We'll talk again. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WAVC. More ahead.